Hello friends and welcome to the midweeks. Sorry this is a day or so late. We're going to dive in with David again. So David's on the run. We're in chapter 16. Absalom has chased him out of Jerusalem. And David's going to have two negative encounters. And then we're going to return to Absalom in Jerusalem. And what Absalom gets up to now that he is essentially the king by usurpation. So starting in verse 1, when David had passed a little beyond the summit of the Mount of Olives, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, and 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? And Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, Where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in, this sight, in your sight, my lord the king. Now, this interaction between David and Ziba is a little sketch, a little sus, as the kids say, because Ziba comes out with food for the king, and other people are going to come with support for the king. And so this is a time when people are kind of declaring their allegiances, and they're maybe even either having faith that one side is going to come out on top of the other, or gambling, one side's going to come out in the ever, other. And we're not totally sure what's going on here, but you'll remember that Ziba is a servant of Saul that gave, that kind of took over all of Saul's stuff when Saul died, and David gave Ziba and all his sons to Mephibosheth to be servants. And so here comes Ziba with these gifts for the king. And when David asks him, well, where's Mephibosheth? Um, Ziba has this bad report about Mephibosheth, that Mephibosheth is hanging back in Jerusalem. He thinks he's going to become somebody important now. Um, and later on, Mephibosheth is going to deny that that's what was happening. But David reacts to the, the report by giving Ziba all of Mephibosheth's stuff. So he's acting like he's king here. And um, this isn't great, I don't think. I think this is not a great moment for the king. So he is responding with rewarding Ziba, but he hasn't actually done an investigation here. He doesn't actually know what Mephibosheth is doing. And it kind of looks like Ziba is um, angling. It seems like he's he's playing politics here. Um, and then later on, when David's going to deal with stuff, if my memory serves me right, he's just going to split the possessions between the two so that he's, he's kind of going to give up on trying to decide who's going to be master here. But this doesn't seem like a great moment when David um, so declares that Ziba's going to be now in charge of everything for the, because he's maybe feeling like betrayed by Mephibosheth. Remember, he'd exalted him to be like one of the king's sons and eating at his own table. So this isn't great, but this is kind of just like the fog of war going on right now. All these things are moving around. People are doing different things. You don't really know what's going on. And here's this sense where David is making a decision, not based on prayer again, but by the facts presented to him in the moment. And we, Ziba hasn't really proven himself to be a trustworthy person. And so there's this big question mark over Ziba's report, whether it should be trusted or not. And it doesn't appear like it fully should be later on. 
While the king keeps moving, verse 5, when King David came to Baharim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, and the son of the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually, and he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men who were on his right and on his left. And Shimei cursed. Sorry, said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Now, again, this is a weird thing, and both of these, the theme between both of these incidents is it has to do with Saul's leftover house. Um, and one of the reasons why we kind of know that Shimei is off his rocker a bit is that Saul didn't actually do a lot of killing in the house of Saul. When Saul was king, David avoided Saul as much as possible. There was civil war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David didn't directly kill any of the descendants of Saul. And Mephibosheth, who is a son of Jonathan, so a descendant of Saul, has been eating at his table. So it doesn't really seem like David deserves this cursing because he hasn't been a man of blood against the household of Saul which again makes you kind of think that Ziba who's also angling based on the, the reign of Saul here is also maybe got this same kind of like pent up unforgiveness or pent up problem because of uh, David's relationship to the prior kingdom they're both maybe seeing like this upheaval with Absalom is a opportunity for them to vent or personally uh, position themselves anyhow verse 9 then abishai the son of zariah said to the king why should this dead dog curse my lord the king let me go over and cut off his head so typical navy seals but the king said why ha what have i to do with you you sons of zariah if he is cursing because the lord has said to him cursed be cursed david who then shall say why have you done so and David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now this may this Benjaminite leave him alone? Let him curse, for the Lord has told him for, to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road, while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him, and cursed as he went through stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. You better believe it. And there he refreshed himself. All right, so Abishai sees this guy cursing and defiling the king under any other circumstances. If people were cursing and throwing rocks at the king, they'd be dead. So this gives you a sense that uh, Shimi really believes that David is a nothing burger now, that he's totally been deposed, Absalom's going to reign, and that the house of Saul is somehow going to find more power and position under the reign of Absalom here. And so uh, Abishai wants to take him out, and David withholds him again, saying like this, this, the, the fact that this is happening is from the Lord. Maybe David is even meditating on that, that threat that the Lord gave him that, um, bad things were going to happen to him because of what he did with Bathsheba. And so he decides to take the route of humility. He decides to say like, maybe the Lord's letting this happen. Or the Lord is letting this happen. And if I'll just humble myself under this cursing, God will raise raise me up. He'll repay me for the cursing going out today. So real humility. These two stories about descendants of Saul angling and cursing and working their machinations. And David 
trying to choose the route of humility here and calling all his people to choose the route of humility with him for the sake of the Lord. Remember, one of the great themes of this book is God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And if Ziba has come with pride, God is going to work this out and oppose him. And if Shimei has come with pride, God is going to work this out and oppose him. And if David will take the route of humility, God will give him grace. And this is what's going to happen. But anyhow, the story is going to now shift camera angle. We've been watching David leave the city. And he's gotten to the Jordan, which is a major boundary in Israel. And he's there refreshing himself, so they're going to take the dust off that's been thrown on them and have something to drink. And now we're going to be shifting scenes back to Absalom in Jerusalem. And so verse 15. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem with a hit and Ahithophel with them. And when Hushai, the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. Do you remember David has sent Hushai in to be a spy for him? And Absalom said to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why do you not go with your friend? Okay, so Absalom is right to be suspicious of Hushai um, because he is David's friend. And so he's wondering, like, why are you still here? And so he's somewhat suspicious of what's going on here. And Hushai, is, in order to really preserve his life and his task from the king, needs to gain Absalom's trust. And so Hushai is going to speak in a way to try to gain Absalom's trust. Verse 18, And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, this I, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? For I have served your father, so I will serve you. So Hushai presents himself as being faithful to David by serving his son, which is a little bit weird, but again, um, and saying like, he thinks the Lord has done this and the people of Israel has chosen and so he's going to go along with this. And so Absalom is going to listen to this and accept Hushai's presence amongst his counselors. And so really I think what this does is it gives us insight into where Absalom is at. Absalom really does think he's somehow pleasing the Lord doing this. Absalom is a man who thinks that power comes from the crowd. And so when Hushai says, I'm going to follow the crowd too, Absalom thinks this is how the world works. Hushai sees the crowd. Hushai sees the crowd and thinks that this must be the Lord to have such a crowd supporting Absalom. And of course, Hushai is going to be convinced by the size of the crowd because Absalom is convinced by the size of the crowd. Absalom is not a man of prayer. We don't see him praying anywhere along this. He is a man of the flesh. And so he sees himself surrounded by the fleshly power of the men of Israel and says, I must be king. Look at this crowd. And so when Hushai presents himself as agreeing with the Vox Populi, as it's called, the voice of the people, he falls for it. This is how Hushai gets in. And so this is Hushai's wisdom. He's kind of taking this gamble and guessing that Absalom is um, someone who just is not a man of faith, faith, but a man of the flesh. And so he tries to convince him that he also is a man of the flesh. And this works. Verse 20. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel. What shall we do? And Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. And all Israel will hear that you've made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. 
So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days the counsel of Ahithophel, the counsel that Ahithophel gave, was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. So again, um, Absalom allows Hushai to stay, and but instead goes to Ahithophel, who is the greatest counselor and the greatest wise man in the time of David, and asks for counsel. And Ahithophel thinks that you know, morale is the main issue here. They've had this small success of driving out the king, and now um, Absalom needs to consolidate the morale of his people by really doing something grievous against David, by really proving that they're not here to make peace, they're here to take over, and that David's reign is done. And so he says that a symbolic action of really having taken over would be to uh, take the wives of the previous king and that's usually what would happen the new king would take the wives of the previous king and so even though you know this is his father's concubines it's really messed up i think it breaks the law of moses it's definitely a violation of these women um, absalom goes for it as a sign to say we have taken over the joint and we're not making peace with david and he's not gonna be able to make peace with us we are the champions here now this is a fulfillment of God's, again, his uh, judgment against David for what happened with Bathsheba. I think he said, what you did in secret I'm gonna, uh, is going to happen to you in the daylight. And so this is the fulfillment of the consequences of David's sin against Uriah, Bathsheba, and the Lord with what he did there. And in broad daylight, David's wives are being taken by somebody who's a family member so same with Uriah you might remember they were like brothers and David took his wife and now Absalom is a son of David and Absalom is taking his wives and what was done secretly is now being done publicly and it fulfills the word of the Lord and now here's Ahithophel and in verse 23 there's this the story stops and there's just this evaluation by the narrator that Ahithophel was the wisest man of the time so much so that it was pretty much like he was a prophet he was so wise at how people works and how politics works that he was almost like the very word of God and everybody thought so including David and Absalom and so Ahithophel is being set up as this really important figure and I can't remember if I've shared this but Ahithophel has motives here if you read the end of the book of Samuel, it's going to mention that Ahithophel is actually Bathsheba's grandpa. And Ahithophel's son was one of David's mighty men. And so was Ahithophel's grandson by marriage, Uriah. And Bathsheba was his daughter. So this is all in the family kind of thing. So David had, you know... Uh, somewhere between seduced or raped Bathsheba, had a son with him, killed Uriah. And so Ahithophel has kind of been in the court, but biding his time. And so now that there seems to be this moment to get revenge on David, Ahithophel is right there in the midst trying to make this coup succeed. And that's Ahithophel's story. And it's not, you're not hit over the head with it, but if you read right to the end, there is real drama going on here. There's real, probably, bitterness. Ahithophel's just not a nobody kind of just doing stuff. He's got a vested interest in having revenge against David. 
But unfortunately, you know, David is out there with Bathsheba right now, and Bathsheba is uh, has Solomon with him, most like with her, most likely at this point. And so, this is just very messy family business. And again, panning out for a bit, this is all about the promises of God. God has promised to David that one of his sons would sit on the throne, and now we have this evil son conspiring together with. Somebody who is actually a relative of the man who is going to take over the throne. He's like Solomon's great-grandpa. They're conspiring together to get rid of Solomon's dad. And it's just so messed up because of sin. And there's this big question, how can God work this out? How can God work out his plans to bless Israel with a faithful king? And God is going to work on it. But he's also working in together the covenant of Moses, where Moses promised that God is going to... um, Sorry, God promised that he's going to discipline unfaithful kings as sons, but Moses also has these these rules like thou shalt not kill. And so God has to work together these covenants and find the way through in order to be faithful both to his covenant in blessings and curses as well as his covenants of unmerited promise that he's given. And so we have this scene of like intimate, close connected family members brutalizing each other because of... Uh, anger, unforgiveness, undealt with sin, uh, pride, and the consequences of actions being worked out in the history of Israel. And so that's where we're going to end this chapter here, where it looks like Absalom is just at the top of his game with a Bithophel at his side. David's on the run at the Jordan, and it's just kind of going from bad to worse. And this really is going to be where things start to turn around. This is the apex of Absalom's influence, and things are going to start going downhill for him from there. Not because David deserves it, but David was humbling himself a second ago and inviting the Lord's mercy in his life by being willing to accept a deserved curse or an undeserved curse and seeking the Lord to respond on his behalf, which is just an encouragement for us. That if we take the road of humility and allow the Lord to respond on our behalf, God can give grace to the humble and work things out for his kingdom's good. Amen.